in May 2016, Archbishops of Canterbury and York invited Christians from across the Church of England to join a wave of prayer during the days between Ascension and Pentecost, a time when the Church traditionally focuses on prayer. They encouraged everyone to ask for the Holy Spirit to help them to be witnesses to Jesus Christ and to pray for others to discover that living faith. What started as an idea gained momentum and in 2016 more than 100,000 Christians from different denominations and traditions took part from the UK and across the world. They joined more than 3,000 events and services to pray for others to come to know Jesus Christ for God's king and for God's kingdom to come. The time of prayer culminated in six national beacon events over Pentecost weekend at cathedrals and in different parts of the country. At Winchester, demand was so great that overspill areas with big screens had to be organised, and at Canterbury, a live stream was set up for people to join in on the internet. And by July, it had received over 300,000 views. The response to this simple invitation was astonishing, as hundreds of thousands joined in from churches of many denominations and different traditions around the UK and across the world. In 2017, every diocese in the UK took part, and 85% of Church of England churches and cathedrals were involved, as well as the churches of the worldwide Anglican Communion, and many other denominations and traditions. Leaders from churches together in England, including Roman Catholic, Pentecostal, Baptist and Methodist churches, free churches and Orthodox churches, came together to pray, Thy kingdom come. Archbishop Justin Welby said, In praying... Let's see if this is working. In praying, Thy kingdom come. We all commit to playing our part in the renewal of nations and transformation of communities. It's been quite a phenomenon, really. The, the pace in which Thy Kingdom Come as a, an initial Anglican initiative has kind of caught fire across the world, really. Uh, and it has involved more than just the Anglican Communion, it has involved all sorts of people who've had this kind of smouldering passion to pray for the transformation of our communities and to see global change. And so this period between Ascension Day and Pentecost, 10 days, which is the 10th to the 20th of May, has become this time where we gather together across the denominations to get on our faces before God and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. That is an incredibly powerful thing to do. And so this year we're getting on board as a church, and we're getting on board as churches across Totnes, uh, so that we can have a Totnes prayer wave as part of this global thing. So the, the plan is, and I'll go into more detail on family night, um, the plan is to walk every street of Totnes over those 10 days, so that every single house has been prayed through. Um, as we go past, we want to bless every single house. We want to uh, engage every person that we meet, uh, and have a conversation with them, explain what we're out doing, do a bit of um, prayer evangelism. We want to have a prayer room that's open for that full 10 days, so that at any point in the day you can go and just be with God, and just engage with Him, and ask God what it is that He wants to do, what's on His heart for this area, and pray it down. So there's going to be a prayer room open the whole time, and there's going to be a few events that are going to 
begin and end the time as well. And it's all going to culminate in a, a, a big thing in Exeter Cathedral, uh, which you would all be invited to come to if you would like to trek up there to finish, where we gather all the prayers that have been written down throughout the time and put them in a big box. And then we take them with all the other churches from around Devon to Exeter Cathedral, and we're going to make a mountain of prayers and just commit the whole lot to God as a, 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 as a county. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's pretty powerful. So that's, that's coming up on 10th to the 20th of May, and you know, I'll go into a bit more detail on Wednesday. Why do we do that? Why do we do it? We do it because we're in exactly the same position as the first disciples were. We can do absolutely nothing without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we've got a lot of talent in this room, we've got a lot of skills here, we've got a lot of expertise, and we can do a lot through what God has gifted us to do, but actually, real, lasting change, transformation of community, you, we can't do it. And if this whole thing begins with us holding up our hands and saying, actually, we don't have what we need to change the hearts and minds of people across this area, it's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. We've often said here, we need to work like it depends on us and pray like it depends on God. I think the working like it depends on us, I think we're an incredibly hard-working church. I think we all give very generously of our time and of our skills and that's an amazing thing in and of itself. But I, do you know what? I feel like we need to catch up on the pray like it depends on God. Amen. So, yeah. I think we need more of that because do you know what? When God is at work, everything gets easier. It gets harder in some ways too, more messy and complicated, but as far as reaching the lost, it gets so much easier. We want to see this area blessed and transformed, don't we? Yeah. I've been doing a bit of a tour of the mission communities, uh, and I've done a different session with each one, depending on where they're at, and uh, the conversations I've had with the leaders. And last week I was at the uh, Totnes mission community, and I set them an imagination task, and it was something along the lines of, uh, God has blessed your mission community with a promise of an absolute outpouring of his Holy Spirit, and his grace is going to be moving really powerfully through your group over the next five years, and every prayer that you pray, God is going to answer in some way with power. That being the case, where can you imagine your group will be in five years' time, and what would you like to see along the way? So we all uh, got to it, and so we asked God to come and just baptise our imaginations with his brilliant ideas and with his thoughts and with his heart, and people were scribbling away feverishly on their bits of paper, and 15 minutes or so later, we just started to feed back around the room what we'd written down, what we can imagine God can do with this group over the next five years, and what we'd like to see him do, uh, and what we'd like to see along the way, all the, the exciting bits that we'd like to see. And it was amazing to see what was in the hearts of people as far as hope and longing for transformation. There was a lot in there about healing. There was a lot in there about the lost finding a home and, and, and being gathered into fellowship. And there's a huge amount into, in, in not to, just to do with building the group, but transformation of the area. And that came with prophetic words and all kinds of pictures and different ways that people express that, but it was to do with 
wide community transformation, that this whole area would come to the knowledge and experience of Jesus and find a way to come home, that faith would rise. This place needs a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God in order to see any real change. And so I've been searching the scriptures again, really just asking the question, what does it take for people to respond to the gospel? What changes people's hearts and minds towards this incredible gospel of Jesus Christ? And some of it has been a real confirmation of things that we already know, uh, things that we already practice, things that we already pray for. And some of it has been a bit of a surprise to me, actually. Do you know what the main precursor is to an outpouring of God's power? You may think, an anointed preacher. No, not according to the word. That's important, but it's not the main thing. A gifted prophet? No. An inspired strategy? It's important, but it's not the main thing in there. Great programs that are really accessible to newbies. It's great, but it's not the main thing in scripture. Awesome community services and local action initiatives. Those are great too, right? But they're not the main thing in scripture. All those things are really important and I want to keep doing them. But you know what the most important thing, or two things actually, scripture says, is needed before an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of them is unity among believers. That just has hit me hard as I've searched the scriptures again and again and again, preceding an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in some way where the Spirit of God had broken through in some new way. You see this picture of unity amongst believers. Does that surprise you? Turn with me to John 17. We're going to jump around our Bibles quite a lot during this one, so this would be a, a good test for some of you to see how fast we can get there, because we're going to have to keep moving. So John 17, and from verse 20, Jesus prays for his disciples, he prays for us, and he says, and I ask not only for these disciples... So he's praying for the twelve and the, his followers that are around him. I ask not only for those disciples, but also for all those who will one day believe in me through their message. That's all of us, yes? I pray for them all to be joined together as one. Even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us so that the world will recognize that you sent Now, when I read that, I don't know if you're the same as me, I, I, I want to take it as literally as I can. This is Jesus' last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, and he's pouring out his heart for us. He's praying his final prayer for us. And he's basically saying, the world will recognize and have faith in Jesus. Faith will rise in their hearts. They'll believe in who he is and what he came to do and who they are in his sight and in the story of the gospel. How will they recognize that? Because Christians will get on with each other. Because there will be unity amongst the church. And I'm thinking, 
That just doesn't make sense. So you're telling me that if I work on being at one with you, if I choose to love you amongst, above anything else, and if I embrace my Catholic brothers and sisters across the road, and my Anglican ones, even the Quakers, uh, <laughs> I'm only joking. Uh, if I embrace all these different people with their different traditions and their different ways, and, and I say, actually, we're family. And we are essentially one under God with one Father. Then somehow by doing that, all these people who I know are hostile to the faith, I know quite a few people who are quite anti-God, or certainly have absolutely no interest in God whatsoever, or in the Gospel, that they will somehow supernaturally understand who Jesus is and want to respond to the Gospel. What? How does that work? For me, that's about as crazy as the Jericho story. Great big fortified walls of Jericho, giants inside, terrifying big fortress. What are we going to do? We're going to walk around it every day for seven days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times, and then we're going to go, ah, and it will all be fine. <laughs> Similar, isn't it? How does that equal that? That's a, that is a weird equation. If, Jesus says, if we are to love one another, if we're going to become one with one another and one with God, it is, there is something powerful that will happen that those looking from the outside will suddenly get Jesus. Stay with me. I was quite surprised at the reality of that as well. I've known it, I've understood it, I've prayed about it, but there's something fresh that's hit me of how can that be? It's amazing. But it is what God says. So, when you follow that same theme throughout the scriptures, when you're looking at what is it that turns people's hearts and minds towards this incredible story of good news that we had, there's this theme that comes up again and again. Turn to Philippians in chapter 1. I'll put it up for anyone that hasn't got their Bible, but it's, it's worth reading it from, from the Scriptures. Philippians chapter 1 and from verse 27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether or not I come to you, that's Paul speaking to the Philippian church, whether or not I can come to you, I may hear of your activities, that you are standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do not be frightened by your adversaries. This is a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is from God. Standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, and by doing that, God will convince them of their need to be saved. They will see salvation at work in you and believe it's from God. I don't know about you, but I find it quite hard to convince Christians that, that non-Christian people are in any way on <coughs> precarious spiritual ground. We don't like the idea that people maybe, as this says, headed for destruction in some way. It's not a particularly pleasant thought for any of us, is it? 
But this verse is saying when we love one another, when we start getting a one heart and one mind and we start relating to God as one, even people who are on the outside looking in will have come to some conviction that they are on dicey spiritual ground and they'll see in you that you are saved and they'll understand that that is from God. That is quite a claim to make. Can your minds go there that this town could be moved in that way by our unity? <coughs> As if um, Paul hadn't got the message across strong enough. He mentions this twice more in the letters to the Philippians. He says in Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, according to what we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And then Philippians 2, 2 and 3. So I'm asking you, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity. That's what we're heading for, chaps. Perfect unity with one heart, one passion, and united in one love. Walk together with one harmonious purpose, and you will fill my heart with unbounded joy. Be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts, but in authentic humility put others first and show others as more important than yourselves. What does that look like? That's what we're aiming for, this self-effacing love, where every other believer, we consider them as more precious even than ourselves. What does that do to denominations? Can you imagine a town where all the church leaders pray more for the other churches than they do for their own? Can you imagine a town where it doesn't matter which church family you're from, everybody is considered as one big family of many expressions. And if somebody has need in any different church, we're all willing to respond together. What does that look like from heaven? I think that puts up some sort of flag in heaven that creates a response. I was trying to work out how I could explain what unity and being family is like on the ground at a grassroots level, rather than it being just a concept. Uh, and there's all sorts of stories and things I've heard over the years that came to mind, but one, I thought, one that seems to sort of settle on the top, which I want to share with you, is something that I heard Francis Chan say. Uh, a while ago. Have you come across Francis Chan? Anyone? Great, great Bible teacher, great communicator, love that guy. He's over in America somewhere or other. Um, but he was telling me a, a story once that stuck in my mind about his, it was in his church, and they've got a, like a multi-campus church, as you have in America. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that they would do at the end of this uh, broadcast to all these different multi-council churches, is they would give a few needs that needed to be met during the following weeks, and then anyone could volunteer to come and meet that need, which is pretty cool. People meeting in different places, they can meet one another's needs, which is very cool. There was a guy who had no kidneys, who needed regular trips for dialysis. So he had to be in hospital several times a week. And so they put this out on the, uh, this broadcast, saying there's this person that is gonna need support to and from hospital, it's about half a day each time to be able to take him in, wait for the dialysis to happen and then bring him home. He's uh, quite disabled with it. 
um, and he needs to go very regularly. He's got very little family around him, so as a church, we'd love to see if we can support. There was a guy who heard this in a different campus to the one that this guy used to worship in, and said, oh, I don't work on Thursdays, I can do the Thursday shift. Very cool. Okay, so that week, they hook up their details. This guy goes to take this man with no kidneys for his dialysis, and they sort of strike up a friendship in the car on the way over. They've only just met on the day. And while he sat in the cafe waiting for this guy to have his treatment, he just feels God lay upon his heart. Why don't you give him one of your kidneys? And uh, there was just a complete peace about it. And he just thought, this guy's family. If he was my brother, would I hesitate? And God asks us to be family. So why not? And so he goes home. This, this guy who's offered, thinking of offer, offering one of his kidneys, he's, he's a young man with kids, young kids. He's got a long way to go in life. He's, and uh, of course his wife's like, what? <laughs> Are you sure that's a good idea? And he, everyone tries to talk him out of it. Everyone tries to convince him that this is not something that we need to do as Christians. This is not part of the, the, the remit. And he's just saying, well, Jesus says, you know, if you've got two shirts and somebody needs one, <laughs> I've got two in there somewhere. Why don't I give one? Anyway, ends up giving this guy a kidney. And so many people got saved through that story. Why? Because they were looking from the outside in. And they were saying, he did what? That's ridiculous. Who loves like that? That's an extreme case, I'll, you know, I'll give you that. <laughs> but, it's when we get to that point where we really do see each other as brothers and sisters and we can't let each other go without, we would do to each one of us what we would do to our immediate blood family, that there is something that becomes incredibly attractive to a watching world. It doesn't have to be involved body parts. <laughs> but it might. It might. That's what family is. That's what it means to be one with one another. It's to say, actually, you are as much my brother or as much my sister as anyone else is. If we're in the kingdom. Everybody on the same page, in heart and mind and attitude and energy and resources and passion. When we start to get hold of the passion of God, when we start to hear his heart, when we start to come together under his hopes and dreams and visions. We love each other deeply as people, but also we're grabbing hold of his heart at the same time. When we love each other like that, sacrificially, I think it moves the heart of God. I really do. I think, it, I think God cannot help himself but respond. I think God looks and sees that the believers are like that and thinks that is a place that I can pour out my blessing. Right there. They're ready. So the prophets articulate this so clearly. David said in Psalm 133, How truly wonderful and delightful it is to see brothers and sisters living together in sweet unity. It's, a pre it's as precious as the sacred scented oil flowing from the head of the high priest Aaron, 
dripping down upon his beard and running all the way down to the hem of his priestly robes. This heavenly harmony can be compared to the dew dripping down from the skies upon Mount Hermon, refreshing the mountain slopes of Israel. For from this realm of sweet harmony, God will release his eternal blessing, the promise of life forever. That's a promise, isn't it? Love that, Psalm 133. Sweet harmony, release of blessing. Sweet harmony, release of blessing. Or as Jesus put it, when you agree, my Father will do things. Didn't he say that? When two of you on earth agree, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. Even mountains can be thrown into the sea. The impossible things can be made possible. So it's time to stand on God's word and God's wisdom, not on our best strategies, not on our best plans, not on our skill base, not on anything that we have which is within us, but just come back to what the word says. And the word says, do you know what? If you guys get your act together and love each other, I will pour out my blessing. So over the next few months, I want, I want to ask you all to strive to love and honour anyone who claims to follow Christ as best you possibly can, regardless of their tradition or denomination or personality. Seek that oneness that Jesus prayed for. Amen? I think if we focus on that, we're going to have an amazing few weeks with Thy Kingdom Come coming up and Bright Festival just coming up hard after that. We're going to be working together across the churches. We're going to have an amazing time. So unity among believers is the first precursor to a move of the Spirit of God according to the Scriptures. The second precursor is focused, fervent prayer. Amen. Getting on our faces, getting on our knees before God and saying, God, have your way. So in Acts 1, and this is uh, 12 to 14, it says, The disciples left the Mount of Olives, as Jesus had ascended, and returned to Jerusalem, less than a mile away. And arriving there, they went into a large second floor room to pray. Those present were Peter, John, Jacob, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Jacob, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of Jacob, and a number of women, including Mary, Jesus' mother. His brothers were there as well. All of them were, what? United in prayer, gripped with one passion, and interceding night and day. And then, how does chapter 2 begin? On the day of Pentecost, just before the outpouring of Pentecost, that was the scene. They were together, united, and in prayer. On the day of Pentecost, as it was being fulfilled, all the disciples were gathered in one place. Suddenly they heard the sound of a violent blast of wind rushing into the house from out of the heavenly realm. The roar of the wind was so overpowering, it was all anyone could bear. Love that. So from that moment, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, everything began to shift. Everything began to change. The impossible mountains that were set in front of the church began to shift towards the sea. What Jesus said would happen began to happen. Fear lifted off. People supernaturally understood their need for repentance and faith in Jesus en masse. Peter stood up and preached his best sermon, but I don't think it was just his oratory that did it. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and people suddenly saw something and understood and were cut to the heart, as it says in the Word. 
And then the blessing kept coming, wave after wave after wave, crashing over the whole area. And even the mighty Roman Empire couldn't hold back the flood of God's blessing. And it's hard for us, I think, when we read the accounts to understand just how powerful that Roman grip was on the world. When Rome made a decree, nothing could shift it. And there were so many uh, symbols and signs that Rome was in control, Rome was in charge, what Rome says you can do, you can do, what Rome says you can't do, you can't do. It would have felt impossible to establish the Church of Jesus Christ in that environment. But you know what, when they get on their faces in prayer, you watch Rome take a step back. It's amazing, just follow it through Acts. Let's look at Peter's jailbreak in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, and from verse 12. So, basically, uh, Peter's been in prison because the Roman Empire wants to squash this new sect of the Nazarene, or followers of the way, as it was called then. Uh, so Peter is in prison on the floor, chained between two guards, who will be executed if he escapes, behind several prison gates. And then an angel comes in the night and says, Peter, get up now. We're leaving. This is my paraphrase, by the way. <laughs> and uh, so Peter wakes up, realises the chains have fallen off his wrists. He gets up, he walks through open gates, out into the street, finds himself out in the street, thinks he's having a dream because this is all so bizarre. And he suddenly realises that he's actually awake and this angel who has led him out has disappeared and he doesn't quite know where to go. So he then makes a decision. So from verse 12... When he realised this, he decided to go to the home of Mary and her son, John Mark. And the house was filled with what? People praying. When he knocked at the door, up to the courtyard, a young servant girl named Rose got up to see who it was. I, I, I usually hear Rhoda there. Probably the same route. This translation says Rose, but we'll say Rose. He got up to see, she got up to see who it was. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so excited, she forgot to open the door and ran back inside to the house to announce, Peter is standing outside. Are you crazy? They said to her. But when she kept insisting, they answered, well, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter was still standing outside knocking on the door. When they finally opened it, they were shocked to find Peter standing there. So this is a church that is on their faces in prayer. They are saying, God, would you somehow get him out of prison? And then Peter's knocking on the door and they just don't believe it's actually happening. Why? Because they haven't yet worked out the power of what they're doing in that room. And I think we're in the same boat. I think sometimes we're in our prayer meetings, we're saying, God, would you do it? And actually, if God answered that prayer there and then we'd say, really? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> because we're on a faith journey. Of, we're growing to understand how God loves to respond to prayer as well. And I think, you know, we're, we're at the beginning of our journey in some ways, even though we've seen some incredible answers to prayer. There is so much more to, to experience. There's a lot more that our faith can grow. But I love that. This was an impossible situation. Rome had Peter exactly where Rome wanted Peter. But when the disciples got on their faces, it was like Rome took their hand, its hands off and Peter walked free. 
And the gospel could not be contained in that way. And they started to understand that when we get on our faces before God, it doesn't matter how daunting anything looks or how impossible our community is to reach, anything can happen when we pray. So when we think of our Totnes community and the grip that certain things have on our community, the, the secular spirit, the alternative spirituality, uh, the, the distraction that is there, that people just don't really want to think about anything too deep, they just want to uh, get by and work as much as they can and then chill out as much as they can as well, and that seems to just roll on and to ask any bigger questions is just upsetting to that equilibrium. All of that stuff, there is a grip on us, anything can shift when we get to pray. So jump forward to Antioch which is Acts 13, and from verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were a number of prophets. Hang on. No, I haven't got a PowerPoint for that. <laughs> In the church at Antioch, there were a number of prophets and teachers of the word, including Barnabas, Simeon from Niger, Lucius, uh, the Libyan, Manaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul. They were worshipping as priests before the Lord in prayer and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, I have called Barnabas and Saul to do an important work for me. Now release them to go and fulfill it. So that after they fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So during this designated season of prayer, that they were having in Antioch, God clearly told them to release Paul and Barnabas into their wider work, a ministry that turned the Near East and part of Europe upside down and completely converted the Roman world in two centuries' time. I mean, that's just phenomenal. Out of that prayer meeting, it was like a domino effect. They, set, they pushed the first one, they sent out Paul and Barnabas, and God just did thing after thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. And this massive, mighty, marble-columned Roman Empire just bowed the knee to Jesus in the end. Incredible. Incredible. So would it be too much to expect to see something shift as a result of our designated season of prayer and fasting. Do we believe it? Do we believe something powerful can shift when we unite in prayer? <coughs> History is full of evidence that great moves of God come when believers unite and give themselves to fervent prayer. 19th century evangelist, oh hang on, I've gone all over the place, I want to read you a quote. Nineteenth century evangelist Reuben Archetoris saw thousands of people turn to Christ. He says, Revival does not just fall from heaven, it must be prayed down. I have a theory, and I believe it to be true, that there is not a church, chapel, or mission on earth where you cannot have a revival, providing there is a nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until it comes. It's good, isn't it? John Wesley. 
founder of Methodism and a witness of a phenomenal awakening of faith in England in the 18th century, said this, I am persuaded that God does everything by prayer and nothing without it. D.L. Moody, American evangelist who saw revival first week through America's universities, he said, every work of God can be traced to some kneeling form. Another one, Charles G. Finney. Perhaps this is the person who has written most extensively on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He said, a revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat is. In any community, a revival can be secured from heaven when heroic souls enter into the conflict, determined to win in prayer or die, or if needs be, to win and die. Okay. We can learn from these people. I think we can learn tons from these people. They've seen things we haven't seen yet. But they've all said the same thing. They're, they're all on the same page when it comes to what is necessary before an outpouring of the Spirit. Agreement. Gathered, focused, fervent prayer is necessary for transformation. Amen? They caught what Jesus meant when he said, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I will be in their midst. So, we agree, heaven notices. We ask, he moves. We bind and loose on earth, things change in heaven, and then earth feels the impact. I want to finish with a story, a short story, which is about revival on our soil. I think it's something important about hearing stories, not just from Africa and Latin America and India and in the States, something that happened on our soil. Before revival came to the Hebrides in Scotland, still just about our soil, <laughs> two elderly women uh, in their community they become concerned of the ungodliness and the lack of commitment to spiritual things around them. And they couldn't face it, and they decided to do something about it. On the Isle of Lewis in the late 1940s, there were no conversions. The island's youth were rebellious and lost in sinful pastimes. They likened becoming a Christian to catching the plague so that incumbent church leaders decided to do something about it. They issued a proclamation calling on the Lewis Christian community to examine their spiritual state and petition God to send repentance before it was too late. Most people ignored the call, but two dear aged sisters took it to heart and began interceding for the island in devoted prayer. The Smith sisters, Peggy, who was blind, and Christine, who suffered from chronic arthritis, were too infirm to get to church services. But they loved the Lord, and they wanted more than anything to see change in their community. 
They began nightly prayer times when they agreed together to pray for God to send revival. And a few weeks after they started, unbeknown to them, a group of young men began interceding on another part of the island. Night after night, God met with them until God began to sweep across their community. He came in such powerful presence upon the isle that the most unlikely people fled from their sins at all hours of the day and night, calling on God to save them. On their fishing boats and in their fields, sinners broke down and cried out for mercy before hearing a single word from any preacher. Ministers had to hold four church services in the evening. Such was the hunger for God. At 7pm, 10pm, midnight and 3am every day. Am I up for that? Um, <laughs> often the church was packed to the doors with more souls outside praying in the fields than inside. God roused people from their beds. Others just couldn't sleep and went to their knees. Weavers were struck down and overcome by God's presence and were saved at their looms. Fathers, sorry, farmers tilling the land habitually stopped at midday for two hours of prayer. Most of the people saved in the revival were born again outside the church building. Preachers generally didn't need to lead them to the altar for salvation. Instead, they left them to God, believing that he was the best person to lead them home. I love that. One lad fell to his knees by a pigsty and was wonderfully born again. And not long after, he was late coming home from the fields. A search party found him face down in the heather, repeating over and over, Oh Jesus, I love you. I love you, Jesus. When he was asked to pray during a particularly stiff service, just three sentences of prayer brought forth the fire of God. The preacher, Duncan Campbell, said that more souls were saved through young Donald's prayers than all the preaching of all the preachers in the revival. Love it. Crime ceased. The police jail was left unused. Virtually every person on Lewis and Harris was saved during all the, the almost three-year revival. People came in boatloads from neighbouring communities and the revival spread throughout the Western Isles. This was no flash-in-the-pan gimmicky fad. There was real fruit and fruit that lasted. It's time to get on our faces again, amen? Have the band up, and I, I'm going to pray. And I'm not going to call for prayer ministry. You can have some if you want some. <laughs> There'll be people around, uh, but I really feel we've just got to come before God with this question of where I am, where am I with regards to fervent prayer, passionate prayer. Where am I with regards to unity with my church family? Because we need to get this right. Let's pray. In fact, let's stand before we pray. Just feel like we've got to wake ourselves up. And just enter God's presence again. Lord, open our ears. Open our hearts. We want to be soft and pliable in your hands. We want to be part of what you want to do. So Lord, would you meet us here in this moment? Lord, we want to experience the unity that you prayed for in John 17. And we need a miracle to do that. Lord, would you pour out sacrificial love across the churches? 
Lord, pour out kidney-giving love across the churches, I pray. Help us to see what is at stake, what is, what is possible, but yet hangs on our willingness to unite and pray. Lord, would you motivate us to press in once again? And when we do, please, would you come like a rushing wind? Lord, let us taste and see another Pentecost. Lord Jesus, give us manifestations of your glory. Break open prison doors. Release a chain of events that will touch this whole area with your power. And lead people to salvation in their droves. Lord Jesus, all for the glory of your name and for the delight of your heart. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.